morning and welcome to Midpoint on WMNF, your independent, listener-supported, commercial-free source for news and public affairs from a local perspective. I'm Shelley Reback. With me are our hard-working WMNF volunteers, Jessica Green running our soundboard, and Barbara Fling, who would be thrilled to answer your phone calls during the show so that you can share your comments and questions with us. You can call us at 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text us at 813-433-0885 to join our conversation. First of all, I must thank all of you for your generous support during our recent summer fundraising fundraising drive. Thanks to you, Midpoint made its goal. And the powers that be at WMNF now know that you want more of the topical, factual information, expert opinions, and guest commentary on all of the issues of the day that we've been bringing you here on Midpoint. I will do my best to continue to keep you well informed and our conversations lively. But the overall fundraiser came up a little short, so if you did not get a chance to donate yet to support our station operations, please do so by going to wmnf.org slash donate and please direct your donation to Midpoint or MPW from the drop-down menu and give us a plug. Today, we are sad to report we are going to be discussing anti-Semitism. Why? Because for the last couple of weekends, Tampa neighborhoods have been the targets of anti-Semitic literature drops. Anonymous individuals who are representing a group that WMNF will not name so as not to credit them or enhance their profile drove through several neighborhoods in South Tampa, throwing baggies filled with their literature and scoops of rice to weight down the baggies into driveways and onto front lawns for residents to find in the early morning hours. This group is known to law enforcement, and it is not the first time that they have done this. They have distributed this material in Orlando, in Sarasota, and elsewhere all around the country, and in the last few weeks, Tampa has been their target. We know about all of these incidents because each time it happens, media coverage follows in the local press and in the Jewish press and in countless social media posts. And some sort of toxic ecosystem has developed in which these flyers feed the media, which brings notoriety to the flyer makers group, who then make and distribute more flyers, which drives more people to support their online and video media platforms. And then that traffic creates more adherence to their wild, hateful conspiracy theories against Jews. So we here at Midpoint are not going to play that game. We are not going to mention the group and we are not going to publish their flyers on our website. Suffice it to say that the flyers feature a list of Centers for Disease Control and Prevention officials and pharmaceutical executives all with Jewish-sounding names suggesting from this that Jews were responsible for the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the reverse side of the flyers name-checked a number of Disney executives as Jewish and suggest that they and Disney were responsible for grooming children. The flyers include lots of advertising for the group's media presence and ironically disclaim any, quote, malicious intent, close quote. Despite that disclaimer, the flyers are appearing amid an increase 
in violent anti-Semitic attacks and consequent increased fear in the Jewish communities. The Anti-Defamation League, which tracks anti-Semitic behavior nationwide, found 2,717 incidents of anti-Semitic behavior in 2021 that were reported to them. That's a 34% rise from the year before, and it averages out to more than seven anti-Semitic incidents per day. That is the most anti-Semitic attacks in the U.S. since the ADL began recording them in the 1970s. Notably, anti-Semitic acts were going down in the United States for almost 15 years. There were fewer of them up until 2016. That's when they started to move up. And now we're at the point where we have nearly triple the number of incidents today that we did in 2015. To help us understand why and what is happening with the enormous increase in anti-Semitic incidents and what our community should be doing about it, my guests are my guests today. I have Jonathan Ellis, chair of the Tampa Jewish Community Relations Council with us. Welcome to WMNF, Jonathan. Thank you. And from the law enforcement community, we are joined by Susanna Mapu, FBI special agent, who is the local lead agent on hate crimes for the Tampa field office. Welcome to WMNF to you, Susanna. Thanks for being here. Thank you and good morning. And a bit later, Andrew Warren, state attorney for the 13th Judicial Circuit in Hillsborough County, will also join us by phone. Hopefully, he'll talk about the local investigation into the distribution of these flyers. But let me start with you, Jonathan. Uh, before we get into the flyers and issues surrounding them, tell us, what is the Jewish Community Relations Council and what is its mission? Why are you here? <laughs> Well, I'm here because I was invited. <laughs> yes, no, but I mean but the Jewish in that capacity. The, the Jewish Community Relations Council is just what it sounds like, and, and that is it's the arm of the uh, Tampa Bay uh, Jewish community that deals with community relation issues, and those deal with anything from anti-Semitic issues, anti-Israel activity, to reaching out to the community and seeing what the Jewish community can do or help or assist with uh, other organizations or other groups. Um, and so I just want to remind our listeners, we're going to focus on anti-Semitism today on this show. We're not going to get into issues of Israel, um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to stick with that. But um, let me ask you then, um, are people reporting to you incidents of anti-Semitic anti behavior that they've either experienced or seen? Are people reporting that to, to your organization? We get those reports regularly when it happens, and that doesn't mean that every anti-Semitic incident is necessarily reported to the Jewish Community Relations Council, but a number of times they are. So if there happens to be a vandalism or a swastika or distribution of uh, pamphlets that you're seeing or flyers in, in, in this instance, those things generally make their way to the Jewish Community Relations Council as well as law, law enforcement. And, and what happens when, that, when you get a report of that type of activity? What, what is your role? There's not a standard protocol on how you handle it. The first thing we like to do is we like to make sure law enforcement is appropriately advised of the activity. Then you try to look at it, meaning does this type of activity deserve a response or not? Is it something that actually creates a threat to the Jewish community or to the Tampa Bay area or not? That's an interesting question. Um, do these incidents of just um, hate speech 
or spraying, spray painting swastikas, for example. Is, does the mere existence of that type of you know, discriminatory uh, speech bigoted speech um you know racial hatred speech does that is that create like a clear and present danger and Susanna feel free to to jump in on this point too if you if you feel so inclined what do you think Jonathan so so I think the answer is generally hate speech if it falls really within first amendment speech areas in its of itself does not create violence and it usually doesn't create life or safety issues but to the extent you have a lot of it or it starts to be accepted you will see people with using that speech taking it to the next level and when you have a lot of speech then you wind up potentially get a higher getting a higher chance of property damage life safe you know personal injury or or worse and you can see that nationwide from pittsburgh to california or some of these incidences and they usually just don't organically create themselves but a lot of times if you will look into the background of these people they are on the websites they are in the chat rooms they are following what would arguably be hate speech and then they're moving it one level further yeah Susanna what's your position on this yes I wanted to add that exactly what Jonathan mentioned is what we consider a hate incident and while it does not rise to a federal crime the FBI wants to know about these incidents uh, for a couple of reasons. Once we want to know what's happening in our community, and that way we can apply the necessary resources to hopefully prevent and deter any crime from you know further occurring or occurring in the future. So it's very important that we are, we know about these types of incidents from the community and uh, our local partners. And, uh, you know, I know that the FBI, Susanna, has issued a report that has called domestic terrorism now the greatest threat to the security of the United States. I mean, you know, much greater than Middle East terrorism or any other kind of, of uh, violent extremism. Um, they have labeled domestic terrorism as the greatest threat to the security of the United States. And, of course, you know, we're getting a lot of information about that, given the fact that we've just had the first two of the January 6th hearings about the insurrection at the Capitol. So let me ask you, Susanna, do you see incidents of, of anti-Semitism increasing locally? And what's law enforcement doing about it? And, yes, so the FBI's... Uh number one priority is to protect the American people from terrorism. And that could be either international or domestic, as we're seeing here more recently. We want to assure the public that we're putting our resources where they need to be to be able to complete that mission and to protect the public. And um, what was the other part? You know, have have you and the FBI had increased reports of anti-Semitic activity, at least in, in this field office's jurisdiction locally in, in West Central Florida. I know nationally there most certainly has been an uptick in hate crimes. But that could be for many different reasons. Is it more in the news? Is it more reportable? People are reporting it more to us. Are, we are also involved in the community. We provide training to both our local law enforcement agencies as well as the community. So we are uh, getting out there and um, sharing this information with the public. So it, it's a possibility that they are reporting more, and then that way we have more uh, incidents reported. Well, I mean, just reading any newspaper on any day, and you're going to see somewhere, some 
report of some sort of hate crime incident. Of course, we just had the shooting in, in Buffalo, which was apparently clearly directed toward black Americans. Uh, you know, we had the shooting in Uvalde, which we haven't had a lot of information about the shooter's motivation there, but we did know that that was a school that was populated primarily by Hispanic kids. Um, and, and you know, of course, we've had incidents of violence around the country against Jewish institutions like the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, for example. We've had Asian American hate crimes um, in Atlanta, in Tallahassee, and in California. Uh, it, you know, all of these things seem to have increased, not just in the reporting, but in the actual existence of these events, of these hate crimes events since 2016. Um, is anybody, does anybody want to see any sort of correlation between historical events between the 2016 and today that may have contributed to the increase in, in hate crimes since then? I don't have a specific information to provide, but what I can assure you is that any allegation that our office receives is completely vetted. Um, if it's a hate crime, it's prosecuted. We have a very good relationship with our United States Attorney's Office. They're very aggressive. If there's anything in the in the news that could be hate crime or hate incident, call us. So if we are looking. We're we're we will investigate uh, and we will vet any uh, complaints that come in through our office. Okay, Jonathan, and, and you, I, look, you look like you have something No, to I think it's, it's not necessarily just 2016. I think you've even seen slow rises in increases dealing with anti-Semitic activity and hate crimes that would predate 2016. A lot of times there tries to be a drawn a, a, a correlation potentially with the election of Trump or not. I think white ding, wing... Ding, 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 uh, no, thank I think, you. I think the white, you know, I think, you know, certainly... Activity by certain white supremacist groups may have increased at that time, but I think if you were to look at an historical aspect, you would see that there was hate crime increases on the rise, even predating, you know, Trump's Trump's election. Well, I'm I'm going by information, pro, you know, provided uh, by the ADL that I researched before this show, which said that anti-Semitic acts, at least anti-Semitism. Um, anti-Semitic anti acts were going down in the United States for almost 15 years. And then in 2016, they started to move up. So I, that kind of belies what you're saying, at least in terms of anti-Semitic acts. I think if you were to look at it in, in general, you were seeing an increase even before 2016. I think it got more to the forefront when you started dealing with things like Charlottesville and other organizations. Well, okay. Take it up with the ADL. Okay. Uh, that's contrary to what yeah. they're putting out there. But uh, what do you think, WMNF listeners? Uh, do you think that there is some sort of correlation between the election of Trump and the increase in, in that we've seen in in anti-Semitism and, and in hate crimes? Uh, give us your opinion at 813-239-9663 or email me at dj at WMNF. Or you can text me at 813-443-0885. Five. And uh, and let's see, we we actually have a couple calls, so let's uh, let's bring some of our listeners into the conversation. Connie in Tampa, you're on the line. What do you have to say? Uh, good morning. Uh, as we recognize Juneteenth uh, this weekend, uh, there, I mean, historical relationship uh, um, uh, and actions of hate crime against African 
Americans as well documented. Um, has there been any internal look uh, as to any active participation of law enforcement uh, toward the June 6th uh, event? Has has there been any type of internal investigation to see if there has been any law enforcement agents, officers that went and participated in a June 6th event? Okay, Connie, thank you so much for that question because I have in my notes a question very similar to yours that I'd like to present to our, our FBI agent guest because for decades the FBI has routinely warned its agents that the white supremacist and far-right militant groups that it investigates often have links to law enforcement. And yet the Justice Department currently has no national strategy designed to protect the communities that are policed by these dangerously compromised law enforcers. And I'm not talking about the FBI, and I'm certainly not talking about Tampa Police Department or our local sheriff's departments, uh, because I don't have any information that they have been infiltrated by white supremacists. I have no information of that, and I want to be real clear about that. But Florida in particular is the site of more January 6th defendants than anywhere else. And among those defendants, Connie, yes, there have been members of law enforcement, members of the military, retired, active military, um, and a lot of them have come from Florida. So I want to thank you for your, your question, and I want to turn to, to Susanna and, and, and raise this issue because we have in Florida a lot of teeny tiny little police departments. Um, now our sheriffs in the state of Florida are constitutional officers, and they're elected by the public. Um, the police department chiefs are generally appointed positions and some of these uh, police departments are very small in fact there's been a lot of discussion about consolidating them particularly in the beaches of Pinellas County for example because of reasons of economy of scale and uh, and these these very small agencies you know are who's monitoring them um, just yesterday in fact there was a media report of a deputy police chief in Kent, Washington. Now, this is obviously not local, but I thought it was very interesting given our conversation. There was a report of a deputy police chief in Kent, Washington, who was being paid $1.52 million of local tax money to resign from his police force because the officers in his police force were so uncomfortable with his neo-Nazi ideology and his neo-Nazi material that he plastered all over his office. And since being a neo-Nazi is not generally uh, something that is considered for cause, to dismiss someone for cause, Um, He was apparently exercising his First Amendment free speech rights, so he couldn't be fired. So the city of Kent, Washington, had to pay him a settlement of $1.52 million to get him to resign and to leave the the force. Um, And so I'm just wondering, you know, what is is going on with this, uh, you know, 
concern that the FBI has apparently raised. There was a leaked 2015 counterterrorism policy guide that made the case directly that warned FBI agents that domestic terrorism investigations focused on media, on militia extremists, white supremacist extremists, and sovereign citizen extremists have often identified active links to law enforcement. And, of course, we've seen that in the January 6th defense, uh, offenses. So I'm wondering, is that like a topic among, you know, the FBI agencies locally that they need to be on the lookout for some of this type of white supremacist activity among local law enforcement? And I want, just wanted to tell Connie that you're absolutely right that, uh, on a side note before I answer your question, and that the two most targeted groups when we uh, talk about hate crimes are African Americans and our Jewish community. So you are absolutely right about that. And we unfortunately can't comment about active investigations. Nobody's above the law. So if there is a local police officer that is abusing his power based on uh, you know what their beliefs are, that would be considered a color of law matter. Um, and at that point, we can uh, begin an investigation. If you know, unfortunately, or they their own departments should have if they don't have them already. Um, certain standards for their officers. For example, we cannot, FBI cannot be uh, racist. We will not um, be able to continue working in our department if we are a known uh, part of a domestic group. So that is going to have to default to the local state agencies to uh, to deal with those individuals. If they are breaking the law um, federally, then at that point we can uh, become involved. Uh, again, nobody's above the law, and we will prosecute anyone that is committing such a heinous act. Okay. Well, let me bring in uh, one of our callers who found one of the flyers. This is Morris in Tampa. Morris, welcome to WMNF. Thanks, Thanks for calling. For having me. Yeah, uh, hi. Hi. Okay, speak up. Now, you, you indicate that you found uh, some of these flyers? I did, yeah. I, I read about this on this neighborhood uh, chat thing that someone had found 60 or so of these and picked them up and threw them away. And uh, later in the day, I, w I went for a walk and I found one right in front of my uh, home. And um, and it, it has, just like you described, has a bag of rice at the bottom and uh, all kinds of uh, god-awful stuff. Uh, now, was it, it how far toward your door was it? Was it located? Was it like in the, in, you know, in your driveway on your front lawn? Was it in the on the curb area? And the reason I ask is because it seems like people are concerned that if they get too close to the house, they're going to be identified on these ring cameras or nest cameras, security cameras that people have at their front door. So it seems to me that the whole point of the baggie with the rice is to weight it down so it can be flung from a car that's in the street and the person in the car will not be captured on a surveillance camera. So how, where, where did you find it exactly? It was actually in the street. The rice might be in there to keep it dry because it was a rainy day. And uh, I picked up five of these in walking around my neighborhood. Like I said, it was it was almost sundown by then, and um, so I threw away four and kept one. And I called the FBI to tell them about it. 
Oh, you did? Okay. All right. Well, there you go, Susanna. There's one report that we know of for sure. And we appreciate very much you reporting it because if we don't know, we can't do anything uh, with that yeah. information. So thank you. This reminds me of the kind of stuff that I would see from the Klan when I was growing up in Central Florida. They would hand out this kind of thing like at the, uh, in the parking lot of the community college that I went to. It's a recruiting tool, and it really it's just sickening and, uh, and disgusting. Yeah, that's, I, I see it as a recruiting tool, too, because all over the flyers is information about the website for the organization and where to find them. Um, we, we think it's used not only as a recruiting tool, but also potentially as raising of funds. Aha, uh-huh. more of the great grift. Yeah. Yeah, so that's why we're not publicizing the flyers or the group or their, you know, their website or their video channel or anything like that. You know, we don't want to we don't want to encourage that. So, uh, so you had experience with this in Central Florida years ago, then this t- same type of thing. Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I I appreciate you calling in, Morris. I'm I'm glad to hear from somebody who actually found the flyers, um, and uh, and you know had a reaction to them, and and thank you for picking them up too. Appreciate that. Sure. All right. Well, thanks, Morris. We appreciate your call. So there you go. Um, it's not a it's not a phantom. It really happened. Um, a number of people commented about these uh, flyers on Nextdoor, which is frankly how I became aware of their existence. They were, they were um, the existence of them were shared on that neighborhood app, and uh, and so uh, a number of people found them. And I'm I'm pleased to report that at least on that neighborhood app. Pretty much everybody who discussed them was disgusted by them, you know, uh, was saddened by them. Um, there was nobody who supported <laughs> these flyers or the information in them, although there was a gentleman who was very concerned about the fact that they represented somebody's free speech um, and that... Um, you know, he was very concerned that local law enforcement, if they did identify the people uh, distributing them, that they would be prosecuted for what amounted to their First Amendment rights. Is that something that they need to be concerned about, Susanna? No, not at all. We will not prosecute a First Amendment type uh, issue. However, if they litter on the street and that is a local uh, violation, they can be cited or, um, you know, prosecuted. For littering? (laughs) Well... Yeah, it okay. could possible. I don't, I'm not sure that I don't think littering is a criminal offense. Actually, I think it's an ordinance violation. But yeah, well, um, something like that. I mean, not, hate speech is protected. So as long as they're not committing any type of uh, infraction or violation uh, on the state or local level, it's one of the things that the big social media platforms are struggling with. Certainly, uh, we've heard about it. Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know, is how much free speech to tolerate. Yeah, yeah, there's always an issue when you're dealing with Twitter. There's always an issue when you're dealing with Twitter or you're dealing with Facebook to the extent they're not governmental entities. And when you're dealing with governmental entities, the First Amendment clearly applies. When you start to deal with something like Facebook, Twitter, or certain other platforms, there's issues that are being discussed of whether the First Amendment should apply 
to those entities to the extent they've got such breadth and such reach. But they're not the government, and it's generally, I think, understood that your First Amendment rights are a relationship between you and the government, not necessarily between you and a specific private business. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, so you're saying that um, if they wanted to, the private businesses like Facebook or Twitter could kick you off without implicating any sort of First Amendment Correct. It's claim. the same reason you can walk into McDonald's, and McDonald's can say people can't wear swastikas or, or, or Confederate flags. Do they do on that? Their uniform. No, but it's because <laughs> you're, dealing with a pri- you're dealing with a private business that has the ability to restrict your speech. Yeah, yeah, because the First Amendment actually only protects you from the government suppressing your speech, not from private businesses suppressing your speech. That's why you can have dress codes for various employment and things like that. Is that what you mean? That's that's what I that's what I mean. So I think it's a different issue, though. I know that's being addressed even in Congress and by various state legislatures on what limits do you, if you want to put anything on Facebook, Twitter, or some of the other social media um, organizations. Now, in Florida, didn't uh, DeSantis just try to uh, promulgate a law that would have penalized these social media platforms if they kicked off um, political candidates like they kicked off Donald Trump? He... he, uh, he had legislation passed that would have penalized those um, those companies, but it was that was just reversed in court, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I I you know I that's the reverse of what you're talking about. That's where the government, in this case, the state of Florida, would take action against a private company for taking action against an individual to restrict their speech. And that w- I, I believe that that was just uh, reversed in uh, in the courts. Um, now I know that you know, although the First Amendment's uh, also freedom of association provision, you know that people can join groups, uh, protects an individual's right to join a white supremacist group for the purpose of lawful activity. Um, but the government can limit the employment opportunities of of group members who hold sensitive public sector jobs, including jobs within law enforcement, when their memberships would interfere with their duties. At least that is that is a position that a lot of people would like to see these law enforcement agencies take with respect to their members who ascribe to white su- supremacist viewpoints. Um, apparently that didn't happen in Kent, Washington, where the deputy police chief was paid to leave his position. But, you know, I know that that's, that's a question that, um, that really should be addressed. I mean, if you, if you have a job in law enforcement and you ascribe to white supremacist beliefs, can you do your job? Um, you know, I mean, I don't know. Um, I do, I do think that law enforcement agencies just have to do more, though, to strengthen their anti-discrimination policies, um, and not just law enforcement, but you know all of our all of our governmental entities. And and saying that is directly in contradiction to what Governor DeSantis has attempted to do in this legislative session with his uh, anti-woke, stop woke legislation, which has has made it um, pretty much illegal um, to have diversity, equity, and inclusion 
programs in private businesses. That's another piece of legislation that's that's under challenge right now. But as someone from the Jewish Community Relations Council, Jonathan, what do you think about that legislation? You want to be very careful with certain legislation, and you want to be very careful with texture, specifically when you're dealing with the Jewish community on how sort of diversity and inclusion works. I think as a general rule, the Jewish community is clearly in favor of diversity, inclusion. It's important that people are treated. You understand where people are coming from. And then at the same point is how do you deal with Jewish individuals within that framework? Are they considered a minority? Are they not considered a minority? How are they treated? Do they have a level of privilege or not have a level of privilege? We have, uh, and, and, and the opinion, I think, of the Jewish community along these uh, areas are probably as diverse as you have within the country as a, as, as a whole, meaning there's not a specific, quote, Jewish opinion or Jewish position on something, you know, such, such as the stop woke uh, movement. You have, I think, a number of people in the Jewish community that are fully supported. You have other people within the Jewish community that are not necessarily in support of it or don't like how certain aspects of the woke movement may treat individuals within the Jewish community. But I don't think by any means within the Jewish community itself, itself there's an overall consensus on these issues. Yeah, I, isn't that the the you know the phrase you put two, two Jews together you have three opinions? <laughs> isn't yes. that isn't that the legend? Um, I have a text message here uh, from Laura, um, who says my husband picked up and disposed of nearly thirty baggies on Sunday morning, but I was on the fence. Clearly, they are garbage. But don't people need to know that this is happening? Does it give it more oxygen to get rid of it, or do groups like these ignite through attention? Thanks, Laura. Thanks for writing in. I mean, we're giving it attention right here. No, correct. And I, I think you you address that in the in the beginning of your uh, in, in your introduction. You know, if you deliver five hundred flyers and, and none of them are removed, that may have an impact of on on five hundred families. By the time you start lighting up next door with it, it winds up reaching a greater group of people than it would necessarily reach had it just stuck with the 500. And then by the time it starts to get media attention, whether that's television, radio, or what have you, you are spreading the reach. And as you spread the reach, you wind up now reaching the entire Tampa Bay area or greater just by the mere fact that you may have distributed 500 flyers. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's our position that, that barring really needing to let the community know or raising these issues, sometimes the best response is no media response or no attention. So this group specifically, if you were to talk to the ADL, when they don't get attention on the flyers, you'll see on their chat boards that they're upset that mm -hmm. they're not getting enough attention from the distribution of, of, of the flyers. So one of the things we prefer to see is very little media attention to it. On the other hand, media has an obligation to inform the community what's happening, and the media certainly has First Amendment rights, and the media is informing people. So you're dealing with this sort of chism of how much publicity do you give them in a stump like this, 
Well, we're trying to walk that line no, here I, I, at I, midpoint by, right, and that's why by I, talking about the, the fact that they're out there because we do cover local public affairs issues, um, but at the same time not trying the, to give much oxygen to the this group is, itself. This is no, by no means a criticism of, of, of this show or any other media group that's giving attention to it. But it does have a habit of fueling it. The mere fact that you're able not to mention the name, the address, who they are, drive people to the website, I think that sort of removes the ability or the hope they get out of the uh, flyers because they're not getting specific attention for it, even though they may know that they've now created this conversation that's taking place you know, over the Tampa Bay airwaves or over the Internet. Yeah, and we, you know, we think it's important to let people know, especially the people who have not seen these flyers in their driveway yet, that if they do get them, what they should do about it. And that's why Susanna's here, I think, to tell people how important it is to report it so that we can know how much activity there is in our community. Um, it it also lets the community know when you, when you disclose this that there really is an issue of hate out there and that this is being distributed and these are not things that are necessarily taking place in different areas and it does for the individual that that receives this sometimes has an issue of fear meaning this is where they live this winds up on their doorstep and they who get it yeah especially if it's a jewish uh, resident you know who gets this on their driveway they don't know that 500 of these have been distributed randomly throughout their neighborhood maybe they think it's targeted to them and that makes them fearful, um, and you can understand that. But I, w- I have Andrew on the phone. Andrew Warren, who is our state attorney from the 13th Judicial Circuit. That's the Hillsborough County State Attorney. I want to bring Andrew into the, into the call. I, Andrew, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to our conversation at all, um, but I wanted to welcome you to Midpoint, and thank you for calling in. Oh, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Um, did you have a chance to hear any of our conversation before you... Um, uh, called us? I have uh, for the last couple minutes. I was coming out of a meeting with law enforcement, um, and so forgive me for being a little bit late to the party. Okay. Well, you know, we we have Jonathan Ellis here from the Jewish Community Relations Council, and we have Susanna Mapu here from the FBI's Hate Crimes uh I don't know if it's a division or task force or... I belong to the Civil Rights Unit. Uh, Okay, the Civil Rights Unit here at the Tampa Field Office of the FBI. And now we have you, uh, who's our Chief State Law Enforcement Officer um, here in Hillsborough County. And one of the things that we were talking about was our... uh, Well, a couple things I want to raise with you. One is, um, are you aware of these flyers? Has your office been made aware of them? Yes, absolutely. We've spoken with leaders from the Jewish community as well as law enforcement about them. Um, and we're aware of what's going on and aware that it's part of a larger uh, nationwide effort uh, to sow hate and discord. And um, has your um, has the law enforcement agencies that you work with, have they ha- received a number of reports about this? Because, uh, as I mentioned, I, I personally became aware of it because I saw it on the Nextdoor app. And there were a number of people, one of whom we, we had a call from earlier, who said they reported it to the a- uh, to the FBI. I'm not sure if people have been reporting it to local law enforcement as well. They have. Tampa Police Department's well aware. Uh-huh. And what are they doing about it? 
Well, they're looking into it to see if there any crime has been committed. Um, you know, on its face, it appears that people are uh, dropping hate speech uh, in public areas or close to public areas on the edge of people's private property. Uh, there may be, just based on the limited information we've seen so far, arguments that, you know, trespass or littering has been committed, um, but... We're all more concerned about whether there are threats, whether there's any assault, whether there's been, been any uh, express intimidation uh, when the people who are dropping this filth on residents' lawns and driveways and streets are confronting homeowners. And when law enforcement uh, is able to conclude their investigation into this, uh, we'll continue discussing with them whether there's any criminality. But the, the reality is that law enforcement and prosecutors are not the best defense to this. Um, there's a uh, This is arguably free speech, and hate speech uh, is best defended by unity and solidarity. And the reality is that these are despicable people doing despicable things and saying, you know, spreading hate. And I, I applaud all the people in the community who have reached out to the FBI and to law enforcement and to civil rights organizations to say, we don't want this in our community, because I think the message sent to the people behind this is loud and clear. It's, we don't want this. We don't want you here. Get the hell out of our community. Crawl back under the rocks where you came from. Yeah, and, you know, it's getting harder and harder in Florida to... Um you know, encourage people with those sentiments when we have legislation like the Stop Woke legislation that discourages, for example, private businesses and certainly governmental agencies from developing uh, DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs to try to encourage that kind of unity and, and sense of community among people who are different. <laughs> you don't want to comment on that, Andrew, well, huh? No, I mean, well, well, what I think you've seen happening over the past several years uh, at a local, state, and national level is a willingness uh, for people who have these really hateful views to come out with them. And we can all look into the causes and agree or disagree on what's led to an atmosphere where people are more comfortable expressing their hate in any form. But the reality is that the defense to it's the same. We need to make sure that people are unified behind core American values. This is so contrary to what we believe as a democracy, whether it's uh, anti-gay rhetoric, whether it's racist rhetoric, whether it's anti-Semitic. These are all things that go against the very heart of what our country stands for. And, and just in regard to the anti-Semitic propaganda that's been thrown out there, you know, it's important that the community come together and recognize uh, to oppose this, because anti-Semitism, like any form of hate, is not targeting just Jews. It's targeting everybody. And the reality is that any type of hate, whether it's anti-Semitic, whether it's racist, whether it's anti-gay, should be viewed as an assault on all of us and everything that we stand for and believe in this great country. Well, you know, um, I, before you joined the conversation here, we talked a lot about the fact that 
Florida, unfortunately, is the site of more, for example, January 6th defendants than any other state. Um, more residents of Florida have been indicted in connection with the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol than residents of, of any other state. And sad to say that a lot of the people that were involved in that insurrection on January 6th were people who ascribed to white supremacist views. Um, and, you know, so even though even though people are engaged in speech, um, once they take the step to engage in action, I, I, I hope this is the kind of thing that local law enforcement is keeping tabs on um, because, you know, we would prefer that, that people be stopped before they take any sort of aggressive criminal, criminal steps. And I, I, you know, Susanna earlier told us, obviously, that's the... The goal of the FBI is to prevent violence against people. To prevent and deter. And also, if we believe that someone is uh, in danger of their life, we will notify that person. But it is important to get that information, whether it's a hate incident, as we discussed before, or a hate crime. So that way, we, the FBI, can put the necessary resources uh, in those certain areas to hopefully prevent and deter. And one of the good pieces of legislation that we've had in the recent past is our red flag laws so that people can complain to law enforcement if they believe that someone has weapons that they intend to use against another person, uh, they can they can have law enforcement intercede and take, take away those weapons from them uh, before anything bad happens with their use. You know, we do have those red flag laws in Florida, and I think in the last year since we've had it, there's been some, what was it, Andrew, like 5,000 or 7,000 incidents of the red flag laws being used, right? Yeah, so the red flag laws in Florida were passed after the Sturman Douglas massacre in 2018. It was one common sense solution to make sure that we're keeping guns out of the hands of potentially dangerous people. It's been used... Uh, around 8,000 times of the estimate statewide over the past three-plus years. Um, so it's a couple thousand times a year. Uh, it's utilized regularly here in Hillsborough County. Uh, we have weekly dockets where people who have a concern about a family member or a friend or whoever it is uh, can uh, make an allegation or submit a petition essentially to law enforcement. Law enforcement instigates uh start initiates a proceeding um contrary to what you may hear on cable news there is due process people have the right to have an attorney there uh there's a judge of course we're not taking away anyone's rights before there's a determination made um and then the state attorney's office gets involved on the back end uh before a person who has had the rights to own a gun taken away from them temporarily before those rights are restored because at the end of the day our number one priority is public safety, and we want to make sure that people who have been determined to be too unstable to have a gun have been returned to stability before uh, those rights are restored. Yeah, now, um, thank you for that, Andrew, and I have um, a text message here or an email from Laura in Tampa who says, it's so refreshing to hear Andrew Warren overtly condemn these acts. We have leaders in Florida who stop short repeatedly of condemning these acts, and it's dangerous. Um, yeah, we do. We have leaders in Florida who don't step up and condemn these acts, and uh, I'd pay attention to who they are. Um, Andrew, I want to 
talk about something specifically related to your uh, your jurisdiction here. Before you join the conversation, we talked a little bit about the fact that the FBI had done uh, a number of uh, studies and had released some research that indicated that um, that domestic terrorism investigations focused on militia extremists, white supremacist extremists, and sovereign citizen extremists have often identified active links to law enforcement officers. Um, and, um, you know, that's a, that's something that I imagine that your office should have a great concern about um, because prosecutors, I think, also have an important role in protecting the integrity of the criminal justice system from potential misconduct of explicitly racist or anti-Semitic officers. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to your opinion on whether prosecutors should be keeping a register of law enforcement officers whose previous misconduct or racist behavior could reasonably undermine uh, the reliability of their testimony in court in a criminal prosecution and whether that that information um, should be disclosed to defense attorneys as a matter of what we call Brady material. Yeah, so, I mean, a couple things. One is we all want a criminal justice system that protects our the safety of our neighborhoods, but it does so while ensuring fairness for every person who comes through the system and people who haven't even come through the system yet. And we hold law enforcement to a higher standard, frankly, as we should. The vast majority of law enforcement are doing extremely difficult jobs under very difficult circumstances, and they do it as well as they possibly can. But like in any arena, you have people who are bad. People who make mistakes, people who have bad intentions. There have been a fair amount of studies, as you referenced, talking about uh, far-right extremists having infiltrated certain ranks of law enforcement in the military. The reality is that those, those extremist views have infiltrated all aspects of American society, whether it's teachers or doctors or politicians and law enforcement included. What we want to do as prosecutors is make sure that we're addressing bias in the system, both systemic bias, where it's not anyone's intention to do anything wrong, but it just kind of happens because of the way that policies are in place, and bias that comes from individual prejudices. And so when we see a law enforcement officer who has gotten in trouble for something, and whether it's because you know, he committed a crime, uh, a DUI, or because he was disciplined for lying about something, you know, administrative with his agency, or it's because he's... What about hate speech? Or, or about hate speech. If it's something that casts doubt as to the credibility of that person, we pay attention to it. And your specific question was, well, one of the questions was, do we track that? Yeah. We do. We actually maintain a list uh, and it's referred to as shorthand as a Brady list, but it's not. Brady is, as you mentioned, a Supreme Court case that requires prosecutors to turn over exculpatory information. This isn't really exculpatory. It's information. impeachment information. Yeah, it's impeachment information. Basically, it's anything that casts uh, a negative view on a witness's credibility, whether it's law enforcement or a civilian witness. But because we work so closely with law enforcement, we have a duty to make sure that we're paying attention to anything that can impeach a law enforcement officer's credibility and turn that over. And it's become pretty standard. Um, it, it was standard in federal practice in my time as a federal prosecutor. Uh, my office here in the sta as state attorney has adopted this practice as well. You're starting to see this more 
often prosecutor's offices around the country, just to make sure that they are doing everything they can to comply with their ethical and constitutional obligations. All right. Provide impeachment information to the defense. All right. Um, Well, thanks for being, uh, you know, blunt about that, about the tracking of it. I appreciate that, um, that direct answer. Um, Before we go, because we're getting close to the end of the show, I just want to raise with all of you the question of whether you think that more law enforcement is really the answer to, um, you know, to trying to suppress, you know, this kind of hate speech and activity. I'm concerned that, you know, that we're investing in more law enforcement in our public spaces, that the synagogues, for example, are getting bigger and 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 more extensive fencing and cameras and security, you know, apparatus like that. And and I'm not sure that that, that kind of thing is the answer to solving these problems. So quickly, Jonathan, because we're going to end soon. Sure. Give me I, a quick I, I, I don't think... I don't think law enforcement necessarily is a real defense to hate speech, meaning you can't stop hate speech. It has barriers on hate speech. Flip side is very quickly, synagogues and communities need to do what they need to do to protect themselves. Life and safety protection has to be first. All right. Um, Susanna, do you have anything to add about that? Just again, if the community can report it, uh, the more information that we have, the more that we can do and again, provide the the necessary resources to prevent and deter, but it's impairment that the community reports it to us. Yeah, and don't you think that that getting out into the community, having our law enforcement, uh, first of all, people like you, like Andrew, uh, who joined us um, to participate in the discussion, don't you think it's helpful to have that kind of community relations, really, you know, um, as much as more cameras, more fencing, more, you know, guards. Um, I, I think that it, it's it's really important to talk to people about this. Absolutely. And then we, as the FBI, we do provide um, training to law enforcement on color of law matters, hate crime. We can go to the communities. I think ed- education is a, a huge piece in, in the fight against hate crimes hate incidents. All right. Um, Andrew, anything to add quickly? Yeah, I mean, the the best defense against hate is uh, unity, that people don't want it and they won't tolerate it. All right. The people who are spewing hate need to go back to hide in their mother's basement so they can (laughs) chat about it online. All right. I've got to cut you off here because I need to thank my guests, Jonathan Ellis of the Jewish Community Relations Council, Special Agent Susan Mapu of the FBI, Andrew Warren, State Attorney for Hillsborough County, for being with us today for this discussion on anti-Semitism and hate crimes. Thanks also to all of the listeners who tuned in and to those who commented on our many communications channels. We appreciate our WMNF volunteers, Jessica Green and Barbara Fling, who make the show go. And if you appreciate having WMNF in your ears and you haven't yet had a chance to donate to our summer fundraiser, please do. We literally can't go on without you. So go to WMNF.org slash donate, punch in your generous donation number, and direct your donation to Midpoint or MPW to support this show. Now stay tuned for the F- NPR News, followed by Talking Animals. We are WMNF Tampa. Live from